this monological notion of reason, which was largely influenced by Descartes. The idea is reason is a monologue. It's something you do within yourself primarily. It's monological. And then also, secondly, reason is primarily about being logical. So I'm playing on both possibilities of the word monological. And so that framework says that the main way in which we understand uh, cognition is about an individual mind or brain in relationship to the world. And then you have that the, the, the machines we're making for a very long time are individual computers. So you've got individualism, you've got the idea of a computer as a formal system, and it's formal, it's self-contained, it's self-enclosed, right? And then we've got the machines we're making. And so that's the model of how we still predominantly think about um, the mind. Notice what we're using here. We're using distributed uh, computation. The internet and social <laughs> and social media, what computer are they in? They're not in any computer. They're in a dynamical system running on many computers that are just working together. We have distributed cognition and it makes possible certain kinds of problem solving that you can't do with an individual computer. Reality is properly leveled, that there's not only bottom-up emergence, there's top-down emanation. Because if you have just bottom-up emergence without top-down, then the upper levels are just epiphenomena. They have no causal reality. everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we have the important fields of collective intelligence and the meaning crisis to try and get our heads around. How has the evolution of cognition led to Homo sapiens being such effective collaborators and how is that collective knowledge and wisdom distributed in the society and then passed on to later generations? We're going to be discussing the relevance of certain difficulties that have been arising from cognitive science and from physics research that have, for some, put in question the consensus story that embodied feelings were fundamental in the development of reasoning and consciousness. We're going to be discussing the relevance of the work of Carl Jung on the collective unconscious, of Ian McGilchrist on split brain research, and of Michael Levin on cellular cognition. We're going to be getting into the importance of self-transcendence, a sense of the sacred and meaning to our mental health and to the progress of humanity and the importance of a range of embodied practices like Qigong and meditation to rediscover lost forms of knowledge that can help bring us back from the brink of self-destruction and self-delusion. There is, of course, only one polymath who can hold that many topics in a single conversation, and that is the cognitive scientist and philosopher John Vaveki. Vaveki is the director of the University of Toronto's Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Lab and its Cognitive Science Programme. Vaveki has also taught courses on Buddhism and cognitive science in the Buddhism, Psychology and Mental Health program for over 15 years. He is the author and presenter of the YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and his brand new series, After Socrates. Now, I have wanted to speak to John about these themes for a very long time. He is one of the very few academics that can marry the nuts and bolts of cognitive science with the deep history of humanity's mythos and spirituality. So without further ado, 
Let's go. Professor John Viveki, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? Uh, thank you, Freddie. I'm very good. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you. John, I, I love to start by asking my guests about their earliest deep reflections about the world when they were young and innocent. But knowing that you, like me, and I imagine many of the listeners actually had a crisis of faith from inside your Christian family when you were in your teens, I wanted to ask you about that instead. Now, again, like you, I, I lost none of my eagerness for meaning or understanding and wisdom about the deepest mysteries. But I remember feeling profoundly let down by the gap between the meaning of Christ's seemingly universal teachings, to me at least, and what seemed to be this sort of very guilt and fear-led institutionalization by organized religion, particularly following the Creed of Nicaea when it became uh, the Roman Empire's official religion. So just tell us the story of that gnosis that sort of led to you losing your faith and, and how it was replaced by a very different type of search for wisdom. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I won't go over sort of the traumatic uh, aspects of that I, uh, unless you wish me to. Uh, I, I talked about them recently on the Sacred Podcast um, and about um, coming to a deeper understanding of where my mother was coming from and why she was um, imposing a kind of fundamentalist Christianity on me. Um, suffice it to say that, um, like you, um, it left a taste in my mouth, as I like to put it, uh, for the transcendent. Um, uh, even though I, I was turning away from it from, because of the trauma, but I'd like to concentrate as the way you framed it on what opened me up. Uh, recently, I've been talking, a lot of people were interested in what was what was going on before that uh, uh, was hard for you, uh, hard for me. Um, and so I... Um, I mentioned that I, I read I read three books at the time, uh, and I, the order and the exact time. My memory isn't clear about this. It's all it's all bound up by meaning, and that means it's all reconstructed. And I'm not claiming any particular accuracy. I do know that I read a book by uh, a science fiction author called uh, Lord of Light, Roger Zelazny, uh, Lord of Light, and um, that book just introduced me to the it introduced me to buddhism it introduced me to hinduism it introduced me to non-abrahamic uh, mythology and i and it was like somebody had shown me a whole world that had existed behind me and i had just turned around and saw it for the first time and it was like oh there are ways of being that can afford exposure to the light, if I can speak poetically, um, that existed elsewhere and at other times and used different structures. And uh, I also read very near to that time Hermann Hesse's um, Siddhartha, which also exposed me to the depths of Vedanta and also Buddhism. The, the Buddha shows up in that book in a really interesting and thought-provoking way. Um, and then um, I read a book by a Canadian author, so wave my flag, yay, uh, Robertson Davies, um, called Fifth Business, in which I was introduced to the work of Jung. Um, and that opened me up to the possibility for a, an alternative interpretation of where some of the 
archetypal and imaginal things that were still alive in my consciousness were coming from. And so that that really opened me up in a profound way. And I mean, a, there was a lot, it was all, it was very confused. I was very angry at the trauma that that fundamentalist Christianity had caused in me. Um, and so there was a viciousness to my rejection of Christianity that I've come to regret. And I hope I've made uh, appropriate rapprochement and amends for. Um, and there was also a hunger uh, to be, a, a hunger that drove a kind of narcissism. Uh, ha after having been so brutalized and neglected and told I was not worth anything and a sinner, um, I did what other people often do, uh, an unhealthy defense response, uh, which is to be very narcissistic, very focused on uh, myself and um, um, making myself into an idol. I think that is the biblical way of putting it. Um, and um, so there was all of that mess wrapped up, nevertheless, with I, I kept hearing the echo of something um, in these books, and I was being called to it. Um, now, the problem was, I was reading a lot of poetry, and that was important and everything, but the problem was, I mean, this was all happening in high school. High school, especially at that time, did not provide much of a venue for the exploration of an existential crisis, uh, a spiritual uh, rebirth. It's uh, there was there was pretty thin soup, and I I, tr I drank as much of it I, as I could find, but it wasn't enough. So I I, I, got, I became very nihilistic too, and that's also part of the, part of the messiness. And then that also vectored into triggering, and you know this is also part of the trauma. Uh, a profound kind of very visceral uh, depression. I, I, I used to have what I called a black burning in the center of my chest. Um, just a, the nihilism was profoundly painful and visceral. It was like a, a, a burning into abysmal nothing, right? Um, and so that was all churning through me. And I went to university uh, carrying this, um, and then I took a philosophy class because, well, I thought I'm sort of interested in philosophy because that had been mentioned in these books, and I encountered the figure of Socrates. And that, and one other experience I'll relate to, that was so profound. It was like, this is what I'm looking for. Now, it was still wrapped up in the narcissism. I want to be like Socrates. I want to win every argument. And I was, you know, that there, there, there was still that immaturity. Uh, but Nevertheless, there was something calling to me, the, the cultivation of wisdom and meaning and virtue and, um, and, 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 and a completely alternative kind of transcendence, transcendence that doesn't forget nor negate your finitude. Um, and I, uh, I really found that powerful. And then while I was doing that, because of the uh, Indian, literally like from India, influence on my thinking, because I... Uh, of Siddhartha and Lord of Light, and I was reading the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the Upanishads and uh, the Bhagavad Gita. I had started meditating. Now, um, I was still living with my parents, so I had to meditate alone at night in my room in the dark so they didn't know what I was doing because it would be demonic. Um, but I was reading, which added a special kind of numinosity to the experience, I can imagine. Um, 
But I was in the dark and I was sitting up in my bed and, and I was meditating and I had my first mystical experience. Um, and I can't, like many mystical experiences, I can't quite convey it. Uh, I'll try, but I, I had a realization of the platonic forms. I was reading about them in the Republic and these trans geometric forms that are multidimensional and alive and interpenetrating and, and shining into me uh, such that I could make sense, but them, uh, them being beyond my cognitive grasp. And sorry, I'm falling into sort of paradoxical language here, but that was what the experience was. And those two experiences um, reached into the core of me and, and switched something, moved something, reoriented something. Now, I wasn't immediately all better or anything, um, but the, I still consider myself somebody who's a, who internalizes and inspires to aspires to be Socrates and living out a platonic neoplatonic way of life that um, now the problem with academic philosophy for all of its great gifts which I deeply appreciated the tremendous ability to critically reflect conceptually analyze uh, argue uh, do theoretical integration all of that um, reflect on science reflect on ethics reflect on culture um, the topic of wisdom uh, fell off the table. And so I continued in the academic world, but then I, I was again stuck uh, because I, again, something had been awoken in me, but it wasn't being properly homed. So I went down, literally down the street, and there was a place, a dojo, teaching what I would now call an ecology of practices, uh, meditation, contemplation, Tai Chi Chuan. And uh, I took that up, and that really started to give me the training in um wisdom and meaning i'm not claiming to be wise or anything ridiculous like that but it it, it, it made me a proper lover of wisdom uh philia uh sophia and um that started to intersect with uh, an emerging cognitive science um which was teaching me a different way of thinking about meaning making and how central meaning making was i started doing cognitive science professionally and i also started to return via paul tillich to a growing rapprochement uh, with Christianity. But he lit something in me too. Uh, he lit in me, here's a Protestant theologian, world-renowned, proposing the God beyond God, the God beyond the God of theism as the answer to the meaning crisis. I just recently retaught his book, The Courage to Be. And The Courage to Be, and it's so Socratic and it's so platonic, obviously deeply influenced by Heidegger and existentialism. And all of this... So there's, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I don't consider myself. There are many reasons beyond my personal um, psychodynamic history why I, I, I don't consider myself a Christian. Uh, but that started me open, started opening me up. And as I was following all those threads, I encountered the work of Pierre Hadot and ancient philosophy as a spiritual exercise. And then it all just suddenly was together for me. Sorry, that was a long story, but I tried to answer you as, as thoroughly as I can. Well, it's beautiful to get that context. And I think quite a few of those things you mentioned, mystical experience, um, Plato's forms, your love of Socrates are going to come back. There's certainly some things I want to touch on there. But first, let's get into the meat of today's conversation. Before we get on to the meaning crisis and embodied practice, two of the, the biggest threads in your work, as you mentioned, Let's get stuck into one of the biggest themes in this third series of Chasing Consciousness, collective intelligence. Right, right. Before we can really face 
the collective intelligence question, I think we need to briefly just set the scene for the listeners by understanding cognition and how it leads to this very particular type of intelligence that living creatures have, as opposed to, say, an artificial intelligence. Although there is, of course, a lot of room for the unknown uh, on the future of that, which is a lot in the news at the moment. We don't need to go into that. So, John, what is the difference between intelligence and living cognition? I fundamentally think there can't be a difference, and this is I, I, I'll, I'll follow your instructions and not get into the AI, especially the AGI argument, which I do talk a lot about. But I think fu- fundamentally, intelligence is if what if we're t- problem is the word is equivocal. What we mean when we're talking about general intelligence, and the project right now is artificial general intelligence (AGI). So, general intelligence: what makes you a general problem solver? You are capable of doing what until very recently no AI could even do. You can, and you still exceed it tremendously. You can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. You can learn to play tennis. You can take up Albanian history. You can learn to speak Chinese. You can find uh, how to properly travel through the Andes Mountains in in, in Chile or something like. It, just think of it. Uh, it's it's astonishing, and and, and your body is similar, similarly very. Uh, uh, almost transmutable in a way other animals that we are we change our bodies in very powerful ways um so what do i think i think if you're going to answer the question what makes intelligence and i will very quickly get to life um uh, living cognition as you put it and i'm i'm going to really i'm going to take very seriously living and not just use that as a metaphor i'm i'm going to mean living alive um so I think if you ask what makes you generally intelligent, you have to look for what I call the meta problems. These are the two problems you try to solve when you're solving any problem, and they're linked. And these are, if your problem solving is your overall attempt to achieve your goals and be adaptive, there's two things you want to do. You want to try and anticipate the future as much as you can. Think about how you attribute intelligence to other organisms. The more you can see the dog anticipating the future. If I say to my uh, the puppy we're raising, Sadie, go get your ball. And she just, just stands there. Well, that's not very intelligent. But if Sadie runs into the other room, which she does, looks around, goes under the couch, finds a ball, then brings it all the way back to me, I'm going, wow, that's a smart animal. Right, because of the, how Michael Levin talks about, like the cognitive light cone, how deeply into the world, not just spatio-temporally, but also modally possibilities, you can anticipate. And the more you can do that, the more you adapt, more adaptive you are. Now that problem is interlocked with another problem, the one that I've done a lot of work on, uh, which is relevance realization, which is the fact that the amount of information available to you is overwhelmingly vast both within and without. And that problem, like think about all the things you could pay attention to right now, all the things you could remember right now, all the things you could do right now. It's overwhelming. And yet you don't, and here's not what, you don't do this. You you check out everything and say, no, I shouldn't pay attention to it. That's not what you do. You ignore most of it. You ignore most of it. So I want to put these two things together. Relevance realization, the experience is you're actually ignoring most of the world within and without so that it is obvious to you what you should do 
And that seems so, well, obvious to you. And yet giving that ability to a machine has proven to be tremendously difficult. And I would argue, and I'm not going to, that our current AGIs don't have that ability, or they only have a little bit and they actually pantomime uh, us doing it. And I won't get into the details of that. Now, these two problems are interlocked. The, the deeper you anticipate into the world, the more information you, ca- you have to take into consideration and the problem gets much, much worse. So these two problems ultimately have to do with you finding, ignoring most of what's going on within and without so that you find obvious what to do in a way that allows you to anticipate deeply into the world. And you're doing it right now. You're doing it right now. Now, the thing about that is, if you think about relevance, nothing is inherently relevant. Is your left big toe relevant? Well, it wasn't to you until I said that to you. Uh, but, you know, if somebody's trying to cut it off, then it becomes super relevant. Um, and when you're sleeping, it's probably it's irrelevant to you. You know, with the wall behind you, is it relevant? What dep- and what you'll keep saying to me is it depends on the context. That's right. But context is just to say the things that you find obviously relevant to what you're doing. Um, so what that means is that anticipation, that zeroing in, I'm going to put a single word on it. I'm going to try and use it in a really profound way, the way Heidegger does. You care about some things and you don't care about a lot of other things. And that's how you're different from computers. This is Reed Montague's point. They don't care about the information they're processing. They don't care if they lie. They don't care if they hallucinate. They don't care if they if they get it wrong. They don't care. And I don't mean care just as a emotional. There's affect there, but I'm talking about all of this, right? Anticipation, this zeroing in on what's relevant, all of that. You, you connect in it salience, how things are salient, how they're arousing you, how they're grabbing your attention, how they're motivating you, how they're focusing uh, your attitude, everything. Why do you care? You care because you're a living thing. And now I'm getting to it. You care because unlike the rock, you are not, the rock is, right, you are striving to preserve your existence. You may you may say that maybe the rock does sort of uh, biochemically or something. But what I mean is, let's compare you to a fire. A fire is a self-organizing process. But a fire does not self-organize to seek out the conditions to produce and protect its own existence. A paramecium, very primitive form of life, is way more sophisticated than a tornado or a fire because it is self-organized to seek out the things that produce and protect it and avoid the things that threaten its existence which means it's already caring about it's caring about this chemical as food and it's caring about this chemical as poison and its behavior is now oriented there's a salience landscape for it i'm not saying it has consciousness um i do think it has uh, some kind of cognition and that's where michael's work is extremely important and relevant michael levin but i'm saying if you're going to be intelligent you you ultimately have to be doing anticipation and relevance realization. You ultimately have to care. And the only way you really care is if you are taking care of yourself. You have to be a living thing. So the deep difference between what we're gener- what we're sort of calling what we're generally calling intelligence and actual general intelligence is I would argue that general intelligence is grounded in autopoiesis, self-making things. L- listen to the word 
We talk about things being important to us. We literally import them in. Things matter to us. We literally take matter into us uh, in order to make ourselves. And of course, we do the same thing with information. Inform. We take it in. It's imported into us. It matters to us. We build our mind out of it. We make our... So because of this, I would argue, this is my, the core of my work, that the only real kind of intelligence is found in living cognition. Well, it will be very interesting to see where it goes, but we're not here to talk about AI today. We nope. May, nope. may come back to it for another conversation, John, because I know you've been thinking very deeply about it. Listen, we we spoke there about sort of starting to build up to human uh, yes. cognition, and another clarification here before we go collective are all humans self-reflective? Is it possible to be human and not to be metaconscious? I've always wondered. So um, I would pause here and ask you what you mean by human, because the word is deeply equivocal. One meaning is a biological designation, um, and meaning you have a certain you know, evolutionary heritage, a certain DNA makeup, all that sort of thing. Um, the other is, are you a person? And typically we use the word human being as a stand-in for person. We don't do that. That's a human being. We don't mean a biological designation. We mean it's immoral to do that because that entity is a person. Now, I think persons have to be capable of, um, being held accountable, being responsible for their actions and also having authority to make certain claims and demands on me. Um, to treat you as a person is to say, this is Hegel's argument, um, I owe you, I owe you a certain amount of respect. I have responsibilities to you. Um, and I also grant you the authority to make demands on me because you're a person. You're allowed to say to me, Mike, you're not allowed to do that. You, you, are allowed to say to me, don't do that. I'm a person. That's an authority you have over me. Or you you can say, um, we're in the public sphere. I have a right to be heard. Um, yep, you do. Right? You're, why? You're a person. The chair can't make that claim on me. You can. Now, why do people have these relations of um, authority and responsibility? And why is it bound up in reciprocal recognition? When we're starting to edge into collective intelligence. Like, I recognize you as you're recognizing me as someone who has authority to make normative claims and who is also responsible to them. You can call me too. You have the authority to call me to the true, the good, and the beautiful. And I have a responsibility to them. As soon as you're saying that's what a person is, now that's, that's, that's of course to state the ideal. We of course all vary in it because we're not perfect beings, but we're persons when we are most alive to that authority and the responsibility. And for me, that means being rational. Now, I don't mean being logical. I mean being rational, which is to the ability to correct the ways in which I fail to be rational, in which I am engaged in self-deceptive behavior, in the ways in which I am shirking my responsibilities or shirking my authority through some kind of cowardice, right? And so rational is to do all of that 
Now, that ability for self-correction and self-transcendence, to call oneself to the true and the good and the beautiful, to respond to it, that rationality, that requires reflective abilities. That requires your ability to reflect on your own cognition. Self-correction, self-transcendence, heeding the call of responsibility, taking up the mantle of authority, require a self-directedness and a self-correctedness and a uh, a self-cultivation that I think requires reflective cognition. So insofar as we're talking about persons, I think all persons have to be self-reflective. Now, do we do some human beings biologically fail to reach that state? That's a very real question. Perhaps extreme deprivation could make that happen. Extreme depravity could make that happen. Uh, perhaps significant injury. Uh, uh, people who have been raised, feral children who have not existed within the society of that reciprocal recognition process. They would be biologically humans, but they wouldn't be properly considered persons. Uh, I'll, I'll say one caveat to that. Please let me make the caveat. But well, let me, uh, uh, but it just they wouldn't be properly uh, considered persons. The one caveat is human beings biologically have a special demand, which is even when they're not persons, we treat them as persons because by treating them as persons, we turn them into persons. Um, that's how we do it. <laughs> uh, how do you take the biological human being that is not cognitively yet a person, you have a moral obligation to treat that baby as a person because treating it that way turns it into a person. So when I say uh, like people like Jeannie or the feral children aren't persons, I don't mean in the moral sense. I only mean in the cognitive sense. As soon as we find them, we're morally obligated to treat them as persons in the hope of turning them into persons. Now, note that. We think a deep commitment of being a person is that we have an obligation to turn human beings into persons. And that's just a really astonishing thing to, to reflect on. Mm. And, it, and it definitely brings us in the direction of the kind of connectivity we see human cognition rising to, to the fore. So moving that on to the collective level, now we've got a sense of individual humans or persons. Humanity has this extraordinary ability to come together in yes. larger than usual collaborative groups, which uh, Yuval Hari uh, has argued in his really famous book, Sapiens, is really the feature that gave Homo sapiens the upper yep. hand over other species. And that sort yep. of led to our current domination on Earth. I imagine we might have to break down a few different types of knowledge to explain this as the way collective knowledge is inherited by new generations and distributed among the groups isn't quite as simple as we might first think, you know, via language or whatever. So collective intelligence, now that we've separated a little bit from life apart from intelligence, as you argue, perhaps we should just go on calling it distributed cognition rather than collective intelligence. How do you argue that collective intelligence, distributed cognition in this in this context, works? And perhaps you could speak about a few of the alternative theories too, so we can get a sense of the competing possibilities. So the the most important alternative framework—I wouldn't even call it a theory—I think it's a framework within which many theories have come into existence post the Enlightenment in Europe. I mean the the historical period of, called the Enlightenment. 
Um, the most important framework is what I, I increasingly call the monological framework. The monological framework is the idea, it has two interlinked ideas about reason. Uh, so one of the great gifts of the Enlightenment, especially Kant to, through to Hegel, is they really got clear on something that was very implicit, beautifully so in Plato, uh, but they got very clear and explicated this deep relation that I've just argued for between personhood and rationality. Um, and I think that is a great gift. That's why Kant, for all the things I'm critical of him for, will be in the halls of the immortals. I mean, it's just a titanic thing. Uh, I have lots of criticisms of Kant, but that work, and, and then what Hegel did with it, and I think what Hegel did was recover a lot of the Platonic tradition. But now I want to say that there, with all of that wonderful baby, there was a lot of bad bathwater, <laughs> um, which is this monological notion of reason, which was largely influenced by Descartes. The idea is reason is a monologue. It's something you do within yourself primarily. It's monological. And then also, secondly, reason is primarily about being logical. So I'm playing on both possibilities of the word monological. Um, and so that framework says that the main way in which we understand uh, cognition is about an individual mind or brain in relationship to the world. And you have this individualistic, monological framework for how we should try and reflect philosophically and scientifically on the mind. Now, there's huge exceptions to this, you know, Vygotsky and others, but by and large, that's the dominant, and it's still the dominant framework. Um, now, there's two reasons for that, and I won't get into them in great detail. One is um, it, three reasons. One is a political, philosophical reason. The discovery of the value of the individual, the moral worth of the individual, and the rise of individualism, of course, really orient people this way. And while I have great criticism of the monological framework, I do not want to challenge the idea of the moral value of individuals. I think that's a great, another great gift of the Enlightenment. See, you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to, what can we salvage and what do we need to throw away? Um, but there was also the idea first proposed in the Enlightenment by Thomas Hobbes that uh, cognition is computation. Um, and, uh, one interpretation of computation, there are lots, the philosophy of computation is very rich, but a very dominant one is that computation are formal systems. Formal systems are completely self-contained. Um, think of like chess. You don't need to know anything about the world in order to play chess. You just have to know how the pieces relate to each other and the rules for moving them around. That's a formal system, right? And, the, and that's what a computer is. It's a formal system. So it's self-containedness is one of its most important features. And then you have that the, the the machines we're making for a very long time are individual computers. So you've got individualism, you've got the idea of a computer as a formal system, and it's formal, it's self-contained, it's self-enclosed, right? And then we've got the machines we're making are, are individual machines. And so that's the model of how we still predominantly think about um, the mind. And you look through Freud, Jung, a little bit of Jung gets bent with the collective unconscious, uh, but Piaget, right? All of these seminal thinkers are within this monological framework. And what happens is, first of all, notice what we're using here. We're using distributed uh, computation. The internet and social, <laughs> and social media 
What computer are they in? They're not in any computer. They're in a dynamical system running on many computers that are just working together. We have distributed cognition, and it makes possible certain kinds of problem solving that you can't do with an individual computer. We are solving the problem of you and me and being very different places on the earth and actually talking in this face-to-face manner on, you know, in real time. Um, so the internet shows the power of distributed computation. We also started to get a lot of information from evolution, evolutionary biology, and evolutionary anthropology, paleontology, uh, to exactly the point you brought up, that our main adaptivity was our ability to cooperate together, to work together. Um, And we noted from linguistics that no one person owns, runs, or modifies language. Who invented English? That doesn't make any sense. Who's running English? Doesn't make any sense. Who's changing English? Well, we all are, but notice what we're doing. We're doing that thing. If you try and change, you're allowed, you have the authority to try and change, introduce a new word, and I have the responsibility to criticize you or challenge you, and you have to you have to convince me to adopt it, right? And so it's this process So all these things were conspiring to show, wait, maybe what we do is some, most of our problems aren't solved monologically. We're not solving them with monologues just added together. We're solving them with not distributed computation, but distributed cognition. We have things that are running on the network of all of our embodied brains. And there, it's not problem, it's not running formal formal system. It's not running formal logic. It's running dialogically. So what that means is we have increasing evidence that being rational, the ability to detect bias and self-correct works much better when we're in groups than when we're individuals. You stake, take a standard reasoning task, I won't go into the details, the waste and selection task, highly intelligent, highly educated people in university, you give them the task, very simple task, they only get, 90% of them reliably get it wrong. You take that same task, replace it with four people who can talk cooperatively with each other, and the success rate goes from 10% to 82%. Because... This is how we evolved. We evolved that that self-correctedness that's at the core of being rational. Your best self source of self-correction is me because my biases are other than you and that allows me to see things you can't see and I can challenge you. And you know how you get your metacognition that I was talking about earlier? You get it by internalizing my perspective on your perspective so that you can take a perspective on your own perspective. Reason is created and curated and and educated dialogically. And then we use that tremendous power to coordinate labor across time and space and possibility so we can we can become aware of phenomenon, phenomena, I should say, that individual monological cognition can't be aware of. No one person is aware of global warming. It takes a whole bunch of scientists, a whole bunch of computers, all networked together around the globe, cooperating in parallel fashion, working in parallel, working in concert together to be able to track 
global warming. It's what Timothy Morton calls a hyperobject. We can wrestle with hyperobjects because of distributed cognition. And I don't mind the word collective intelligence. Collective intelligence means that that distributed network can solve problems, problems at the hyperobject level, that can't be solved by individuals. It has a, a, a problem-solving capacity. It has a collective intelligence. But surely language is fundamental to that interconnection. I think language is very fundamental uh, because of how it allows us to um, more fine-grained coordinate and give access to our individual cognition and consciousness. Um, and Greg Enriquez and, and later Mercer and Sperber, uh, Sperber, Mercia and Sperber. But Greg, I think, does a really good job. He's a friend of mine. You see, language does give us that capacity for coordination. Um, Bertrand Russell once said, no matter how eloquently a dog barks, it can't tell you that its parents were poor but hardworking. You need language to do that, right? But notice that there's a terrible cost. I have access to the innards of your mind and yourself through language that I otherwise would not have. If you have a kid, you know this. And you're just praying for the day when the kid can talk because the kid will be crying and, what's wrong with you? Like, tell me, what is it? You're crying. Something's bothering you. What is it? And then, you, you, and I'm, you know, I've done this multiple times and you're just praying for the day when they can talk so that they can tell you, you know, what's wrong, right? Now, that makes you incredibly vulnerable. It makes you incredibly vulnerable, which means we have to build up all of these practices of reciprocal recognition, reciprocal responsibility, reciprocal authority, so that we properly manage that vulnerability and the power of distributed cognition so that we can, I'm going to use a word for Robert Heinlein, grok, that sort of really grasping in a profoundly intimate way, we can grok aspects of reality that would be otherwise inaccessible to us. Look, uh, Freddie, you can't see evolution. I can't see evolution. It takes a whole bunch of people in a whole bunch of places, geologists and biochemists and, 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 and physicists and anthropologists and paleontologists and conferences and uh, in order to track evolution. But just no other organism can do that. The reason I mention language is because I'm always thinking about ants. Um, because <laughs> it seems to be a really clear organizing principle between them that extends clearly beyond their individual organisms, beyond their bodies, forming this stunningly well-coordinated collective. Yes. Do you, like, can you tell us what's going on there? I definitely, listeners, want to get a show on somebody who's looked into detail on insects and termites, because I think they're an extraordinary example of this. What's going on there where they don't have language? And do we have something in common with them, or are we completely dependent on language to do anything quite so well-coordinated as them? Well, I think we should pause to reflect on we have something that is very much like them in one way and then unlike them in another. Your brain is made up of individual neurons that don't speak language that are actually individually not very intelligent at all. And if they are properly, and I'm using this very seriously, networked together, they release the power of distributed cognition. You you get a, basically, Dan, Dan, you get an army of idiots, and if they are properly networked together, you get an emergent collective intelligence. So my brain 
is capable of solving problems that individual neurons, even additively summed together, could not solve. That means it's possible to get very sophisticated intelligence without that networking being built by language. It can be built by life in very powerful ways. And I think that's how the brain and the ant colony are the same. Now, how they're different is, and I'm not, what is it, entomology, the study of insects? Uh, or is it etymology is words, entomology, I think, is insects. <laughs> I hope I got it the right way around. Um, I'm not an entomologist, but um, as far as I've read, um, and there's might be a, a sort of a gray area around bees because bees are different. Bees are really bees are to me more interesting than ants, but because they do communicate with each other, uh, very sophisticated the bee dance. But as far as I know, the ant colony, of course, can solve problems individual ants can't solve, and it makes gives it a. But on but. Unlike the human brain, it doesn't seem to be networked together in such a way that it can learn. It doesn't seem to be able to learn and store information and therefore deal with things, deal with problems that haven't been adapted to by biological evolution. It can't do on, it has a, ant colonies have a wide repertoire of things they can do with their collective intelligence. But I haven't seen any evidence that they can solve problems that a year ago they couldn't solve because they've learned something and stored that in their collective intelligence. So your brain is built in such a way that, like the ant colony, you have an army of idiots that generate collective intelligence. But your collective intelligence can learn, and then that makes you like the chimp. And then, but your collective intelligence can learn something generated by and that reinforces collective intelligence, which is language. And that's now how you're two steps removed mm. from the ant colony. That's what I would argue. Well, I'd be very, very interested to ask an entomologist about that. And it'd also be interesting to hear what Michael Levin would have to say about that, about the potential for learning, because he, in our interview, was very... yes impressed by the fact that there was no nothing in the genome at all and yet these things were able to adapt to completely new situations learn new tricks in in just a few days but we're going to come yeah. back in a moment so john i want to move yes. on to a couple of important points which for me raise some difficult questions to shall we say the sort of consensus model so let's just I'm just gonna gonna set the scene here. So you argue for this very body centric model of cognition and consciousness that this is known as the four E's, uh, embodied, yeah. embedded in the environment, enacted in interactions, and extended beyond the brain in relationship with the world. It's also emotional, which is I think your fifth E, and this is very similar to Antonio Damasio, who's argued. Very. Yep. It's argued. He's argued here on the show and in his new book, Descartes' Error that feelings and homeostatic feelings, feelings like fear or hunger, which evolved far before this very sophisticated frontal cortex responsible for language, you know, they are fundamental to understanding the evolution of thinking, of reasoning and, and yes. self-consciousness. But I feel that some relatively recent developments, both in neuroscience and in physics, render this understanding of our reality um, sorry, everybody, to introduce that slippery and somewhat useless word here. 
that understanding of our reality is oversimplified. Um, so sorry for the pre preamble here, John, but just let me take a moment to explain a couple of examples that keep coming up on the show with these important thinkers to sort of explain my concern. So firstly, the neuroscientist Anil Seth, yes. with his elegant, if not completely original idea, the controlled hallucination. We've yes. got an excellent episode on this, listeners, with Anil, um, if you want to get some more detail on this. He acknowledges that we don't see the world as it really is. Uh, quite similar to, um, for example, the uh, the maverick Don Hoffman and his user interface model. We yeah. don't see matter as energy or, or as electrons or quarks, but he says that doesn't really matter because we all see the same hallucination and that in some sense we've evolved to allow us to make what he calls a best guess of the world. And at least for the purpose of our own needs, discerning what is salient, as we mentioned, I, you know, what's important, what grabs our attention, what's important at that one time. So that's the first idea, our cognitive dissociation from the true nature of reality. That's the first one that for me is a little bit of a spanner in the works. Secondly, um, from our many shows, listeners, if you're interested, do go back, aiming to sort of demystify quantum strangeness particularly entanglement and the measurement problem, it's becoming more and more clear, at least to me personally, the world is some sort of vast probability matrix um, that appears to only collapse into a determinate reality. Sorry, there's that word again. When a measurement or an observation takes place, and this confounding result uh, really plays havoc on our material and biological models of cognition. Mm. arising from embodiment in particular bodies, uh, in, you know, with particular cells. So my concern here, which I'm really hoping, John, your wonderful hybrid of cognitive science and knowledge of the mystic traditions can shed some light on, is that if the world is not as we see it, and that subatomic particles with their confounding properties are constantly passing through us, interacting with us, connecting us with other particles in ways that we don't yet fully understand, where does that leave us with this kind of Damasian embodied model of cognition and consciousness? I mean, it clearly works in an approximate manner, in, in a similar way that, say, Newtonian mass, despite being slightly imprecise, can get a ship all the way to Mars. But it just doesn't feel complete. How do you square this off, John? How far down the road of certainty are you about the functioning of distributed cognition? And what research are you following that might upset the sort of consensus Demasian point of view? Uh, well, uh, that was a lot. Uh, and it was said very elo eloquently and elegantly. Um, so I'm going to ask if I can speak for a bit to answer the many threads in there. But feel free to interrupt me if you want. If there I'm is a lot in this. It, it was just to set the scene for my concerns because I feel that they're all slightly interconnected. They are. Uh, I, so I think your 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 intuition that they're all connected is bang on. I think that's correct. And I think to properly answer you is to properly respect that intuition because I think it is a good guiding thread. I just don't want to lose the thread, uh, mm -hmm. so to speak, as we're talking. So uh, remember that issue of anticipation I talked about. I think the predictive processing model, of, uh, Carl Friston, Andy Clark, uh, a, lo a lot of other people, uh, myself, uh, Mark Miller, um, that the what the brain is trying to do is predict the world, but not in some um, uncaring fashion. It's trying to predict the world in a way 
that cares about how that world could be relevant to, to you as an actor in that world. Now, the interesting thing about that is a couple of really powerful insights, um, which is you, you don't try, the brain shouldn't try and predict the world directly because the feedback you get from the world is too ambiguous, delayed, distorted, incomplete, overwhelming. Uh, and so what the brain does is it actually predicts itself. You have a part of the brain that is just causally interacting, the sensory motor with the world. And so, you know, your eyes just seeing light. You don't have to do anything and stuff's happening, right? You're just hearing sounds and stuff's happening and your body just moves and that makes, generates new sensations, uh, right? And then the idea is what, the brain is trying, uh, higher levels of the brain are trying to do is try to predict those patterns in the lower levels and predict them in a pre preparatory way because anticipation isn't just prediction, it's prediction and preparation. So it's trying to detect the pattern and complete it ahead of time so that you can anticipate the causal structure of the world. Now, two things about that. One is, it turns out that if you get really good at predicting yourself as you're causally coupled to the world, you actually get really good at predicting the world which is just powerful insight. But so there's a sense though, in which uh, to use Seth's term, your brain is always doing its best guess as to what is out there. So let's take a, a, a relatively non-controversial example. If I'm walking, once I get to a certain speed, the feedback loop, the sensory motor feedback loop is too slow for me to walk, right? And so what happens is the cerebellum is tracking what, my cortex is doing, right? And what it's doing is it's actually doing this predictive processing. Um, and so I'm actually, I'm going to use this word and I want to make a distinction. I'm actually imagining the floor. Now there's two senses of imagination and this is why I don't like the controlled hallucination uh, term. There's, because it conflates the imaginary and the imaginal. The imaginary is when you're looking at something, like if I ask you to picture sailboats in your mind, right? Versus the imaginal. The imaginal is like when a little kid is picks up a blanket, ties it around them, picks up a stick and says, I'm Zorro. They're not looking at a picture of Zorro. They're looking through the image of Zorro. What would the world be like from a Zorro point of view, if I can put it that way? Like the way I'm looking through my glasses, beyond them and by means of them. That's the imaginal. That's the way in which imagination allows us to orient and get access to the world that we wouldn't otherwise have. It's like, you know, we have virtually augmented perception. There's imaginally augmented perception. So instead of calling it hallucination, it's imaginally augmented perception. Because you know what important property of predictions? One that science depends on? They can be true. Most of your imaginal stuff is true. Right? And calling it hallucination really makes it seem like, oh, well, we're not in contact with reality. Well, if you're not in contact with reality, uh, then why all the causal success? And why all the... How can, how is it you correct yourself? How is it you learn? If, 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 you, if you can only realize that something's a mistake in contrast to something that is correct, you can only realize something is an illusion in contrast to what's real. Real is a comparative term. Illusory is a comparative term. Saying that everything is an illusion is like saying everything is tall. It doesn't make any sense. These are comparative terms. And so I'm worried right there that we're getting, we're, 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 we're conflating a bunch of things together. Well, you say it's not completely true. Okay. Where did that standard of completeness come from? Well, we know from Godel, you can't have completeness. 
Well, that you was one, one point to add there is, is Don, Don Hoffman's point based on Girdle actually, where he's saying that actually in his model, those people who are tracking the truth wouldn't have survived. Whereas those who have only focus on what is salient, only what for that collective makes you survive, that is where it is true. So in that sense, we're not tracking the true truth. We're tracking the truth that's relevant and salient. So here's, and I've had, I've had great conversations with Don. I like him a lot. I respect him and he respects me. So I want to treat him. I want, I want to be clear that I, there's a lot of nuance to, and I'm going to respond to just that point you've made. I don't think that response makes any sense because that's always what the truth has been. So yeah. for example, what caused the sinking of the Titanic? What's the truth there? Well, the ship hit an iceberg. Well, did it, was it the ship hitting the iceberg? The ship hitting the iceberg at a particular speed, the density of the iceberg, the fact that the iceberg was there. The iceberg was there because of glaciation events 200,000 years ago. It broke off because of a variation in the blah, 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 blah. And you know what the real answer is to what caused the sinking of the Titanic? The previous history of the universe. Anything in science to claim evolution is the case, which Don has to claim, in order to say evolutionary forces are at work causing the illusion. Okay, so evolution is true. That means biology is true, which means chemistry is true, which means plate tectonics is true, which means meteorology is true, which means blah, 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 right? We never make isolated claims, and we can never tell the complete causal account of anything. We're always, all of our explanations, even of our most rigorous science, are what is causally relevant when you answer my question, what caused the sinking of the Titanic, you tailor it to which of the causes are relevant to explaining this part of the universe. And if you say, well, that's a distortion because the truth is, then then you're back to this claim, well, it's all an illusion. And I say to you, you're using the word illusion wrong. Yes. You don't know what that means. So I think it's right to say in some sense, it's it's an imaginal thing we're doing. But to say that that means we're somehow disconnected from reality, I find extremely problematic. We don't, well, so we don't see evolution. Yes, we do. You only make that claim if you are committed to the monological view. Distributed cognition with collective intelligence sees evolution. It sees global warming. It allows us to do the science that Anel Seth and Donald Hoffman are using in order to make claims about us living in illusion. Where, who, who, what entity is grasping those facts about the world that the illusion arguments are based on? Well, it's collective intelligence. But you're, you're mentioning a lot the word causality here, and that's where we start to get into trouble with quantum mechanics, because we have all these a-causal phenomena. How do you square that off, John? I know it's not your field, but uh, we have to think about it, right? So that, the, the, there's, a, there's a problem there as well. Um, first of all, as I said, we don't ever have pure causation. We have causal relevance. Um, and so I, I worry about, and so we keep discovering that relevance is bound up with causation. Yep. That's that's what it is. And we're pretending that, well, no, what we have, our machines have direct causation. No, they don't. Our machines, as we interpret them, have causally relevant factors. Look, even evolution. Why did the heart evolve? 
well, the heart evolved to pump blood, but it also reliably makes a noise. So how do you know the heart didn't evolve to make a noise? It also reliably does that. Well, well, and then you, you, you see what I'm saying? Infinite regress. Yes. And so like, you're always facing the problem of relevance realization. And, and, and if you try and say, I, in order to get the truth, I have to be able to jump to a place outside of that and say how things are outside of that. I think that's, that's an impossible claim. That's right. And a jump over your own shadow kind of thing. You can't do it. Uh, the horizons move as you jump. Um, now, a causal principles. Now, you said something very interesting. You said it's probabilistic distribution. Now, what did you mean by that? Did you mean that the relations aren't necessary, aren't relations of necessity, the relations of probability, but you didn't mean that they're indeterminate. You didn't mean that we can't capture them with equations. You didn't mean that there isn't intelligibility there. So I also fear that there is an equivocation between causation and necessity here. And it's not clear that that's also correct. Um, um, let me give you one example. This is from Rick Rapetti. So in order to, in order to talk about determinism, people will have to invoke laws. Laws are, laws say that there is something about the universe that allows me to say what will be the case, not just what has been the case. And you need that for determinism. You need to be able to say the past determines the future. That means the universe is law-like in nature. And I think that's a very strong argument, by the way. Determinism requires law-like, it requires laws. That's the only way you can say there's a necessary relationship between the past and the future. But laws are counterfactual supporting. Laws tell you what, not what is the case, but would be, could, could be the case. If I get enough uranium in this room, atomic fission will happen. It's not happening. It probably will never happen, but it could happen, right? Laws are counterfactual, which means are, there are real alternatives. There are real possibilities. So at what we think of as this necessity, as this billiard ball line of determination, actually is this fractal of possibilities going off in all directions, even when we try to invoke determinism. So, like, are, are the subatomic relationships completely indeterminate? No. Are they determinate? Yeah. Yes. Uh, but does that mean necessity? No, because even invoking law-like relationships gets me into real possibility, counterfact. I think our attempts to apply the way we move around the furniture of our lives to the subatomic or the cosmic level just are breaking down for us. And that's why I, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. In fact, I'm trying to say I don't think the question is well posed whether or not the subatomic level is causal or not. Mm, That's right. what I'm trying to say. I think asking if the subatomic part of the subatomic world is is causal is like asking what time is it on the sun. Mm. It, it sounds like it's meaningful, but it has no meaning. And in some sense, it's irrelevant in this case, isn't it? Because it's such a closed context of interconnected um, cognition that actually, really, we can only really think about that level because we're looking at it from inside it anyway. We're looking at it from in, inside, and we are bound by the problem that the Neoplatonists discovered. As we push towards ultimate reality, we're, we're pushing towards the source of determination, determinateness. We're pushing to the source of intelligibility. And the source, therefore, by its very nature, is itself indeterminate, is, is by itself unintelligible. Because if it was determinate or intelligible, there would be some principle beyond it making it determinate and intelligible. And so when you ask me, is that ultimate level, it's like, yeah, in one sense, it's indeterminate and, and, and 
and non-intelligible, but not by being part of the universe, but by being the ground of the universe. It's not that... I think it's a category mistake is what I'm saying. I rather like Carlo Ravelli here on the show. He said that the way he finds peace with all of this is to understand that really there is no final theory of everything and we could never, ever reach it anyway. So it's fairly fruitless to expect it. Now, I've got so, to get on to Michael yes, uh, Levin, Levin um, yeah. because we, we've got so much to get through, John. So apologies for moving us on here. No, 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 please. Now, another important guest um, that I think is really imbre- really relevant here, who I know you've read, is the biologist Michael Levin at Tufts. Yeah. And uh, he, he recently argued here on the show that we we need to redefine what we mean by where. Uh, when I asked where the memory of the bioelectric field that he's proved is is used to generate a particular bodily form in um, in the growing cell is stored, and he couldn't say where it was encoded and how it was passed on, as it has nothing to do with DNA or RNA. And I don't think that's such a trivial question when we're applying it to this distributed cognition and this technology yes. thing. But but that's another point. Anyway, it's the massive implications for his work for distributed cognition that I wanted to to get your take on, John. Yeah, yeah. Actually, regarding his discussions about the self, um, Levin speaks so eloquently about the way these gorgeous things called gap junctions connect single cells together, allowing them to connect bioelectrically, becoming coupled collectives that allows them to discern their cells as being part of the same organism. That's right. A single self rather than being part of the outside world. And as organisms evolve to higher levels of complexity, there is a sort of hierarchy of agency and objectives. The highest level may appear to to be the controller with the ultimate agency, but actually it just feels that way. And in fact, the sense of cognition and agency objective is independently valid on each of these these lower levels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm a true collective, a hierarchy of integrated selves. So my question is, John, if the world isn't as we see it, um, could these best guesses of the outside world, as Anil Seth puts it, or fitness payoffs, as Hoffman calls them, that have led to our current single isolated organism-based understanding, I think you could, you know, the sort of individualistic understanding of cognition and consciousness, could they, in fact, be just another dissociative boundary in the hierarchy of ever larger selves of collective cognition and agency that reach to levels maybe above our own sense of isolated organism and, and perceived self? Yeah, and I think um, I think Michael's done amazing work. When I uh, was, I think my, my second discussion with Michael, I sort of argue that he is actually a Neoplatonist, and uh, he sort of agreed in the context of that argument. Well, we'll um, be going back to Plato's form soon enough. Um, well, um, it's there. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's the connectedness of the things that is giving them their properties, not how they are in themselves. And that's, in fact, what Michael's work is showing profoundly that there is that there are forms, which doesn't just mean shape. There are structural, functional organization that change the things that the structural functional organization was built out of well i think he's provided tremendous work uh empirically showing that and that and that dovetails with the mathematical work of hole and others that levin michael makes use of and and i've been arguing similar things that and this also addresses uh wolfgang smith's uh, uh, take on the measurement problem that reality is properly leveled 
that there's not only bottom-up emergence, there's top-down emanation. Because if you have just bottom-up emergence without top-down, then the upper levels are just epiphenomena. They have no causal reality. And so you need to you need to have it all the way up and all the way down, right? And and now that takes me to the next point. And I would connect Michael's work with it, the work of somebody who's really important to me personally and also professionally, and this is uh, Evan Thompson and his notion of deep continuity. See, deep continuity tries to to find, split the difference, sail between Scylla and Charybdis. The one monster is reductionism, which says the only thing that's real is the bottom level, the very, very bottom level. And so everything, there's nothing real uh, except the levels below. Um, and, and then, as Ned Block says, the argument actually drives you to that the only thing that's real is the bottom, 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 bottom level, and everything else above it is epiphenomena, illusion. And the problem you have with that is you have the measurement problem, you have what I call the science problem. Well, how do you know about the bottom level? Well, the science level. Well, that requires the level at which scientists are real, and their equipment is real, and their calculations are real, and therefore that level has to be real if any of the conclusions it's drawing about the bottom level are real, and so on. And so that's, right, that's, uh, I think, properly um, right, which means you don't claim you can simply identify the upper levels with the bottom level. That's reductionism. The other would be a kind of dualism. We'll say, well, then the mind and consciousness are completely separate kinds of stuff, and they have no basis in the biology a kind of Cartesianism, right? Um, you have a dualism. Mind and matter are completely different kinds of stuff. And um, and then, of course, how they interact has become very problematic. And we're prone to dualism. We love dualisms. We, we you know, there's the supernatural world, the, uh, the natural world. There's the mental, that which is immaterial, non-physical. There's the physical. And we do all of this. And that's problematic because how it all makes sense, how it could possibly be causally connected it becomes utterly mysterious. How could my mental states make my body move? How could things happening in my body cause mental states like pain? And so that's that's the other monster. That's that's Charybdis. And so what, what instead, and I think what Michael's work points to, is what Evan calls deep continuity. Deep continuity is the idea that there are shared principles at right between the levels so the principles a lot of the principles at work in life are actually also at work in mind i tried to show you that earlier about how relevance realization is grounded in autopoiesis right it doesn't mean that life is nothing but chemical but it's also not something separable from it it's eminent emergent emergent eminent so this is deep continuity and I think that's what Michael's, Michael's work carefully shows. And I think our two dispositions are to easily fall into reductionism. He's showing that it's all just the bottom. Mike is definitely not showing that. Or he's showing that mind is a mysterious, non-biological, non-physical thing. Mike would reject that as readily. He wants to, I think he's advocating for something like the deep continuity hypothesis. Life emerges out of non-life, but it also emanates back down into it. Mind emerges out of life, but also emanates back into it. But what about this very important point he makes about a sense of self? So he speaks about how these ever-larger systems of agency and preference yes. in, in the biological cognition hierarchy 
in some sense, they have a sense of self because that self is, is dealing with those preferences and objectives that it is, it's its job to deal with whatever your liver or, you know, these subsystems in some sense have a sense of self. They have a cognitive self. So my question is us as the controller of our human body, isn't there a sense in which that sense of self could be as illusory as the sense of cognitive self that my liver has. Ah. Actually, there is a larger self, which is that collective consciousness that we were alluding to before, that is, as you say, distributed in the group in a in a way very, very similar to the way, as you put it, the, the analogy of the internet and with that collected information sure. interaction. So that's the, that's the conclusion that I'm resisting. I'm saying to try and say any one level is an illusion because of the levels above it or the levels below it is what I'm challenging. Uh, um, Not to say that that this one is an illusion. I think um, what I'm inviting is the possibility um, that there is a self larger than that. Ah, so I misunderstood you. The illusion would be is that, that perhaps we're the ultimate se- selves and there is nothing larger. Is that the illusion then? Well, perhaps the individualism, uh, this idea of, I think you said most of the the models of, of collective consciousness yeah. are basically individuals inside their cranium trying to work the world out, uh, isolated from the rest of their community. And we're saying that collective consciousness doesn't really work like that. My question is, couldn't we then apply Michael's idea of a hierarchy of selves and say that that collective, the human species, let's say, could be considered a self? And could yeah. that as I asked Michael, couldn't that then extend even further up to even cosmic levels of self? So I think, first of all, the answer is yes. And I'm sorry I misunderstood what you were calling an illusion. Uh, the reason I do that is because many people make that move. I acknowledge you weren't making that move. And so I sort of defaulted into that inappropriately. But I do want to put a pin in that. Uh, the, the temptation is to undermine and say only the bottom levels are real or to overmine, which is to say only the highest level is real and everything below it's an illusion. No, the point, that those... Michael, the point that Michael made was actually the opposite, is that we believe that the little selves below aren't real. We believe we're in control yes. of those subsystems when in fact they're going about their own business as individual selves. It's yes. just an impression that we're in control. And I wonder how far that extends above us. Uh, so let's let's I think this is very well put now, uh, much better. Um, so the you know Epictetus said the 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 core of wisdom is knowing what what's in your control and what's not. Um, and so this is a very tricky thing to say. Um, you are definitely responsible to the true, the good, and the beautiful in a way in which your cells aren't, and then you bind them to doing things. So they show up in places that have nothing to do with metabolism. Uh, they show up in art museums, um, which they wouldn't show up in uh, unless you were concerned with meaning and truth. So in that sense, there is top-down influence. But of course, you wouldn't be concerned with the true, the good, and the beautiful. You wouldn't care about it if you weren't made up of living things that are making themselves the way you are. Uh, it's bottom-up emergence, top-down emanation. So it when you, I mean, and this is what Hole's argument, the mathematical model that Michael makes use of says, is that each level has, is appropriate for certain causal 
uh, features of the world. And it is in control of those, that level of causation. But that doesn't mean that it is in control of all. In fact, what it, what the, what the math argues is that every level gives you a kind of separate doorway into reality that the other levels can't. And what they're doing is correcting each other because the level at which they are properly in control. So I want to say they're all in control and they're all not in control. And I don't mean to sound like some sort of Zen master. It's that none of them have comprehensive control because that's precisely not how agency works. Agency works through deep continuity. It's a fractal. Things are nested within each other uh, fashion. Um, now, towards the, the second thing, um, is the, are there selves beyond us? This is a really important question. Uh, this is a really important question. And, and, and I take it very seriously. Um, do I think, let's go below, do I think the lower levels have consciousness? I don't think that works. Um, if we mean by consciousness what we standardly mean by consciousness, which is this capacity for reflective awareness of my subjective experience from a position of personhood. And I don't think, I don't think the, the little cells have that. Do they have a, a, a very primitive sense of awareness? Yeah. The paramecium is aware of this chemical as food. It doesn't have the concept food, but it, it has a salience landscape, very primitive one. This stands out, this stands out positively, this stands out negatively, and a bunch of it is just background. That's awareness. Is it consciousness? I don't think we should simply equate those, but that's the deep continuity. Awareness is in consciousness, but it's not all there is to consciousness. Now, I think when we're talking about cells, we're talking about self-consciousness. And it, there's a serious consideration that self-consciousness might only be able to exist at one or two levels in this overall hierarchy, because it might, notice the words I'm using, please, it might depend on sort of density and speed of connectivity, um, like so that our distributed cognition can't be causally connected fast and dense enough to give us the phenomena we call consciousness. It is clearly connected fast and dense enough so that it has what we call intelligence. Now, a lot of your intelligence is unconscious. You don't know what you're doing in order to turn the noises coming out of my face hole into ideas in your mind. Something is just doing that unconsciously. All you're consciously aware of is the meaning at the very end of that process. So it's very possible that these hyper agents, the, the agents, and I call them agents because they can solve problems, right? Um, and they can grok the parts of the universe that we individually can't grok. It's very possible that they're intelligent, but they're not conscious. So uh, several researchers call this zombie agency. The, 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 the collective intelligence, the distributed network uh, of, uh, right, of, of distributed cognition has tremendous agency, but doesn't have consciousness and therefore isn't a person um, in an important way. Um, I take seriously those arguments. I tend to think they're, right now, I find them more convincing, but I am very open to somebody coming up with some new empirical result, some new theoretical thing that says, hey, wait, and oh, wow, maybe, they, maybe there is consciousness at that level. But I do think Hull's argument says that these levels have particular access that is specific to the level and I think self-consciousness is a, is a level-specific phenomena. It does actually line up with that argument very, very well. 
to say that two things that yeah. Michael, Michael said that are relevant here. The first was that um, he didn't really believe in binary separations. It was very, very obvious those single cells had some form of cognition. Yes. And as a result, because of the the way cognition works and how you know how it allows you to have agency and preferences and objectives and to work towards them, in that sense, he didn't. He just found it very, very unhelpful to talk about. Oh, this is sentience. This isn't. You know, which level does consciousness kick in? All of these questions. It was better to see it as a as a single um, uh, as a single range to see it as a non um, separate thing between between two possibilities. The second thing that he said was that this could be tested. He says he finds it very, very frustrating when people come in and sort of throw something out and say, well, listen, you know, wait a minute, you know, let's test it first. But John, the reason I mention this is because if we could kind of create a, a, a toy hypothesis to play with this idea of higher levels of collective agency and, and self beyond ourselves, maybe we could deal with some of our collective problems and perhaps disempower this highly destructive dissonance between these conflicted groups with their own yes, agencies yes. and objectives that let's face it is crippling our species and potentially actually leading to self-destruction let alone you know just the, the mere self-delusion of it you know that's why i think it's interesting for us to open up these ideas is there anything to add on collective consciousness as a means of solving our collective problems yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, I agree with Mike that it's a continuum, but a continuum, again, is not an identity. Uh, the colors form a continuum, but that doesn't mean that there's no difference between red and yellow. Um, right? So it's important to, to not dichotomize. I agree with Mike, but it's also important not to reduce um, and think it's a continuum is, right? It does not mean that there's an identity relation running through it. Um, Mike would not say that the cognition of the paramecium is the same as the cognition of a chimp. I, I, I would be surprised if he said that. Um, and differences of degree eventually make differences of kind. If you heat water enough, it becomes steam. Um, and, and so I, I agree with what he was saying, but I want to keep that nuance because I think that nuance... Very important. Um, it, very important one. Once we keep that nuance, I think the question you asked is the question that's a focus of a large amount of my work, both theoretical and practical. Could we give people practices that give them more regularly reliable experience of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition that has been invoked such that while it emerges from the individual participants, it emanates back down in providing a kind of normative guidance to them? I think this is actually the, the, the platonic proposal of Socratic dialogue. And I do it with a, with a bunch of people, a whole bunch of practices, circling, dialectic, and the dialogos that are designed to give people the experience, not, to, not the theoretical conclusion of, but the experience of the collective intelligence of distributed cognition Again, not just sort of out there, but as calling them to virtue, as guiding them in how they practice the cultivation of wisdom and meaning. And I do think what I said earlier about our rationality being carried much more in our distributed intelligence than our individual intelligence, and that that, that collective intelligence can grok reality deeper than we can, that there is reason to pay attention uh, to the way in which that 
geist, to use Hegel's term, that logos can show up, dia, by means of that logos can show up between us, beyond us, uh, and draw us into a way of, I, I want to use a platonic notion here, a way of remembering our connectedness to being. So when, when people are doing these practices, they say, uh, Freddie, they say something reliable. It's really provocative and interesting. They'll say, I discovered a kind of intimacy I didn't know about, but I was always looking for. And that sounds so much like Plato's sense of anamnesis. You remember something, but you didn't know that you had it in your memory. It's that weird paradoxical memory. I was looking for it, and I didn't know it. I recognized it, even though I didn't know I was looking for it. And, and what they're talking it, is it's a remembering of a deep connectedness to themselves, to other people, to wisdom and virtue, and through all of that to an aspect of reality that they had in some sense forgotten about in their monological way of living. And that helps guide people. When people like we when we're doing dialectic into dialogos, you're always doing it on a virtue. What is honesty? And what people end up saying, and, and I want to say why this is important, they end up saying, I, I didn't realize there was so much to honesty. And they have an experience of awe, and they're and they feel called by that awe into becoming, into aspiring to be more honest. You see, a virtue isn't just having beliefs. It's having skills, it's having states of mind, it's having traits of character, it's being called into transformation. Virtue means a power in virtue of, virtual reality, all that stuff. It means power and possibility. And so when you do these practices, people get called in this deep sense to virtue and, and get called into connectedness in a way that seriously helps them to return to the practices they're engaging in for overcoming self-deception and enhancing the connectedness that is at the core of feeling that your life is meaningful. So yes, I think it is deeply central to responding to the meaning crisis in that way. And this is definitely going to come up when we come back to the meaning crisis. Now, the last really important previous guest whose ideas I want to bring into our collective intelligence debate today is the psychiatrist and split-brain researcher Ian McGilchrist. Yes. Thinker who I know you hugely respect. Yes. And his work's implications will also feed into the meaning crisis question Very much. Uh, that we're going to come back to. Now, his interpretation of the split brain data is that the left hemisphere is used for grasping and zooming in on isolated individual material needs, assigning very simplified binary statuses like this is useful or useless, this is safe or dangerous. Whereas the right hemisphere, on the contrary, is used for integrating the bigger picture view, mm -hmm. seeing the wider context, understanding nuanced systems that can be more complex than just a sort of black or white definition as our left brain interpreter tends to storyify them. And listeners, we've got a whole show with neuroscientist Mike Gazanaga. Um, if you want to understand this extraordinary phenomenon of the left brain interpreter and its ability mm -hmm. to tell us false stories, to justify, oh, yeah. uh, you know, oversimplified stories. Now, John, for you, knowing Ian's work well, is there a relevant point here of this right hemisphere big picture perspective, which McGillchrist argues we've forgotten? Uh, maybe we need to remember it, as as you were mentioning just now, that we've forgotten in favor of this predominantly left hemisphere, practical, individualistic, zoomed in, black or white 
uh, I would argue, what the highly westernized worldview and consumerized uh, worldview, is this relevant to the collective intelligence question? Oh, deeply so. Um, and I agree. Um, I think Ian's done a lot to correct for the sort of popular cultural misunderstanding of hemispheric specialization. You know, that the left hemisphere is a fascist and the right hemisphere is an artist struggling to be free and that kind of um, oversimplification, which is, by the way, indicates that it's largely being generated perhaps by the left hemisphere, which is deeply ironic if you think about it. Um, and, and and so, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, and I've said this to Ian in, to, in person, and he seems, he says that my interpretation of the hemispheres and his are deeply convergent. We come at it in different ways, so it's not completely identical, but it's convergent. I think the left hemisphere deals with well-defined problems. These are problems in which the, your initial state, your goal state, the operations you're supposed to perform are very clear to you, like a multiplication problem. Um, and therefore, doing those problems well requires going very carefully step by step by step. Um, and you're very oriented on the features of something. Um, and those are in contrast to ill-defined problems. Ill-defined problem is Freddie and John having a great conversation. What's the initial state? Well, we're not talking. That's not very helpful. What's the goal state? A good conversation. What does that look like invariantly? I don't know. I sort of know it when I'll see it and that platonic remembering. Uh, what are the things we should do? Well, we should say stuff. Well, which stuff? Well, the relevant stuff, blah, 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 blah. And the, the thing is, what we forget in our education system we forget it because we originally have to get people educated by giving them lots of well-defined problems, is that most real-world problems are ill-defined, not well-defined. Have a child. Is that a well-defined problem? Well, no way. I don't even know what I'm going to be, what it's, who the person I'm going to be when I have a child, how my preferences are going to change, what I'm going to care about, right? What perspectives I'll be capable of. Like... This is, you know, L.A. Paul's work on transformative experience. Most of our most of our problems are ill-defined, and many of the ill-defined ones are deeply transformative. They require us to undergoing a significant transformation. And, and so the right hemisphere grabs for gestalts, unifying structures that help us get a grip on, a quick and fast grip on the ill-defined problems and also commit us to the possibility of transformation. It probably evolved to help us deal with predation, which is a very ill-defined problem. Like, so imagine if you had just your left hemisphere as you're about, as like there's some predator coming in. Well, is it a hawk? Is it a tiger? I am not going to act until I'm sure which predator it is and I can act. Well, then you're dead. You're dead, right? And you don't want to do one thing at a time. You need to try a bunch of different things all at once, right? Now, that really matters. And I think Ian's right that the fact that we, and this is because we think that rationality is logic, and we think that knowledge is analysis, and we think reality reduces to fundamental bottom-level stuff that everything is just mechanically built out of, things that you've seen me challenging in, throughout our conversation, right? That we get into a view in which the left hemisphere comes to be seen as dominant, and its sense of realness is dominant. I do have a concern, which is they are both, Ian says this, and I love Ian. In fact, Ian and Daniel Schmachter and I just recorded a three and a half hour conversation that's going to come out soon. Oh, wow. um, and, and 
And um, and I think he has to overemphasize the value of the right, right to counterbalance the overemphasis on the left. But you see, the problem with the right is the right jumps to gestalts, and that's its great power. That's the power of insight. But jumping, when we like it, we call it insight. When we don't like it, we call it jumping to a conclusion, right? So if you tell people, there's this pond, and on it there's a lily pad, and every day the number of lily pads doubles, and on day 20, it's completely filled. On what day was it half filled with lily pads? And your brain goes, leaps into 10 on the 10th day. And the answer is 19. The day before it was half filled, right? It's the day before, right? Uh, and so that's when it was half filled, not on day 10, right? So the right hemisphere leaps. And it is the leap into faith. And it is the leap into meaning. And it is the leap into beauty. And it is the leap of insight. But it also is the leap into conclusions. And, right, and the other ways in which we are very quickly grasping the wrong gestalt. Um, so I tend to emphasize, I agree with Ian, I want to be really clear, that we have skewed things in favor of the left hemisphere. And we need to counterbalance that by a deep reappreciation, remembering in Plato's sense of the right hemispheric world. Because it would bring us to a sort of less egocentric and more of a sort of an understanding of, of our collective possibilities or right but but let's do that so i've advocated strongly here for the power of distributed cognition and collective intelligence but that distributed cognition also leaps into conclusions there's a phenomenon called groupthink where we all we all leap into what we think everybody else is thinking and we get locked we get groupthink propaganda can work that way fed by right? memes yeah yes yes and the way social media does social contagion that's running off this power so I would hope for something that gets us into a proper equilibration between the left and right hemisphere. So we're both capable of some of the most insightful inferences, but of also some of the most rationally justifiable insights, that we're doing both of those at the same time in an integrated fashion. And on, on that ability of cognition, not only to self-transcend, but also to self-deceive, via i would say the left brain interpreter phenomena um even though you know neuroscience has perhaps evolved in the, the the where that's located in the brain but it's definitely a phenomena this ability to deceive ourselves in order to justify a conclusion we make this point when we speak about the evolution of con uh, of cognition and with this p potential for self-transcendence and this ability to to self-deceive is, is one of the main themes in your work do you mean self-deceive in the cognitive sense of the left brain phenomena or something more philosophical and spiritual when you when you talk about this this contrast between the two i mean something more philosophical and spiritual but i also mean something very properly psychological i guess where i'm saying is i don't i don't believe in any panacea practice there's a formal proof of this called the no free lunch theorem there is no one practice that you can do that will make you wise i don't believe there's a a, a panacea part of you I don't. I believe. I don't believe in the panacea of faculty. So, like some people do this with faculties, they do it more uh, um, psychologically than physically. You know, I trust my gut. Your intuition will mislead. When you like it, you call it intuition. When you don't like it, you call it racism. It's the same machine, 
right? Uh, the very processes that make you adaptive. This is what I think the overwhelming conclusion I've come to is the very same process. And this is like the first noble truth of Buddhism. The very same processes that make you adaptive make you prone to self-deception. There is no faculty. My will, your will can mislead you. My intellect, it can mislead you. My emotions, they can mislead you. They also can guide you. Right. I similarly would say I wouldn't attribute all self-deception to the left hemisphere. I think the le- there is a kind of self-deception. Right. There is anal- there's paralysis by analysis. There's Gazinga's, you know, the the narrative bias. And man, are we showing our proneness to narrative bias right now? We are, we face complex dynamic problems and we look for simplistic narratives in which there's a villain and a hero, um, and and then we kill each other over it, which is like just ridiculous. Um, I agree with all of that, but I, the, the right hemisphere is also capable of you of deceiving you, making you leap to conclusions, making you see patterns, larger patterns that aren't there, uh, to grasp um, at, 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 at straws, uh, to uh, to uh, uh, believe in utopias. Uh, these grand visions of a great unifying system and unifying picture. Um, I, I, I think the evidence shows that both hemispheres are both capable of different kinds of bias and different kinds of self-deception and that they are properly supposed to be working in opponent processing, that they're actually supposed to what matters is their collective intelligence because of how each hemisphere helps to correct the other. Right. And that could be the the real beauty of the system, couldn't it? Now, just to close on Ian, um, he told me um, that he was, quote, far more than a panpsychist and that the only thing that we're sure of is consciousness. Everything we know about the world is via consciousness uh, or so. And so we should very least regard it as a fundamental quality of the world. I know you more or less agree with him on the right hemisphere stuff and the left hemisphere stuff, but less so on the consciousness first part. Yes. Yeah. Where do you go your separate ways? And what's the final nail that has brought you down into the materialist camp on the consciousness question? I don't call myself a materialist. A materialist is a reductionist. A materialist is someone that claims that all that's ultimately real is matter. I don't, I so have this, been arguing this point, So this point about the bidirectionality, the yeah, downwardization, yeah, takes you out yeah. of materialism, and where does it land? Well, where it lands is what I call, with the work I'm doing with Greg Enriquez, since extended naturalism, your, what's real is not only what is derivable from your physics and your biology and your chemistry, but also what is presupposed by it. All of those things presuppose that science is real and that scientists are real and that somehow math is real and all these other things have to be real, higher levels. And they also, by the way, given our arguments throughout, that collective intelligence is real because only science and and collective networks of scientists discover evolution and global warming and blah, 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 blah. So that's why I don't... Because when people hear the word materialism, they hear bottom level, matter only, and that's exactly what I'm not arguing for. I'm arguing against that. I argue for extended naturalism. I do not think there are multiple worlds, but I think there are multiple levels within reality, but they are completely interpenetrating, that deep continuity uh, all the way up and all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I I don't land in that camp. I'm not of the opinion that now I've had a wonderful conversation with Bernardo Castro about this, uh, you know, objective uh, idealism. Um, 
I don't think consciousness is ultimate reality. And I, and I, and the argument that all is in consciousness and therefore consciousness is most real is a Cartesian argument. Um, the problem with that is you have to rely on things other than consciousness to make that argument. I have to have memory of which I'm not conscious in order to make the argument that all is consciousness. And I have to have a self-reflective ability um, in order to make that. And myself is not conscious to me. This is something David Hume. You, introspect. Tell me what you tell me when you've introspected yourself. So um I think you're presupposing all kinds of things. You're presupposing that there is something that consciousness can be conscious of that is intelligible. And if you think it's just conscious being conscious of itself, you're still presupposing that consciousness has intelligibility, it has patterns to it. I can go on. Is that I find this position is ultimately still inside the monological camp, that we are trapped inside a cabinet getting postcards from the world that come into our consciousness, and we're trying to reconfigure the postcards in order to figure out what the world outside there is really like. And I have been arguing throughout all of this that I think that's just a fundamentally flawed picture about how it is possibly working. Um, John, we're coming to the end of our time together, and... Um... I think we're going to have to, with your permission, your generosity with your time, we're going to have to come back for a part two, maybe for next year's series, to talk yes. about meaning and embodiment, because I think they are such important and deep themes in your work and to how we can solve some of the greatest problems we face uh, as a species. I think we're going to need a bit more time. So we'll come back and we'll talk offline about whether that's going to be possible. Oh, come on. Oh, yes. You're so kind. But listeners, we're going to just push through to the end, focusing on the collective uh, intelligence question. So hold tight for meaning and embodiment, because this is an enormous branch of John's brilliant thinking. So thank you for your patience with all of this talking about other scientists' work. I, I don't normally do that, John, but I know I was you, happy to do it. I Freddie, know you. you love to place ideas in this wider dialogue between practices and methodologies. So I, I'm, I know that we're good on that. Now, moving on to the last great hero of the show that's relevant here, um, and it, it's also relevant to the meaning crisis stuff that we will we will discuss another time, Carl Jung. Um, mm. God, I wish I could interview him sometimes. Uh, I actually have in my dreams, uh, which was <laughs> Lucky pretty you. interesting. It was amazing. I mean, he's definitely one of my, my main guides. So the collective unconscious. Um, we've covered it in depth uh, in episode five, listeners, with the talented psychoanalyst Monica Wickman. For any listeners who want to try and work out to what extent we can sort of treat it scientifically, she's coming back, incidentally, listeners, to discuss facing our mortality, which is her specialization in Jungian psychology. Oh. So that'll be a good one. Um, so the collective unconscious is a really powerful idea for me. And I think it has to be dealt with by anyone who wishes to have a serious theory about collective, uh, collective consciousness or distributed cognition. Now, Monica said that for Jung, the archetypes of the unconscious were a repository of forms outside of space and time, mm -hmm. and that the conscious mind was constantly drawing its narratives and rich, symbolic inner life from this deep well of, of possibility. Now, John, 
how do you interpret Jung's all important concept? Because so much of his work kind of depends on it. Mm. Is it possible for such a repository to exist outside of space and time in the same way that Plato talks about fundamental forms? Or even Levin talks about us rethinking what we mean by where the information of the bioelectric field is stored, or as he laughed about, where the laws of mathematics live. Yes. Let's start there. I think that's uh, I think that's great. And uh, Plato was my first philosopher, and Jung was my first psychologist. I remember I mentioned I mentioned uh, Robertson Davies and discovering Jung. I have two finger puppets on my fridge. One is uh, Jung, and the other is Plato. I think Jung can be well understood as the the Plato of the psyche. He's part of the whole Neoplatonic tradition of trying to work out the forms within the microcosm and how they are affined to how they find affinity with the forms in the microcosm, I think, uh, the macrocosm, I should say. Um, so Jung is thoroughly Neoplatonic. He's also deeply Gnostic, and those two things were deeply um, talking to each other uh, until um, the Christian preeminence. Um, so um, where? <laughs> I, so first of all, th that question is a good question, and we can get, we have to get to slow down uh, because we can bring in a, a way of thinking we can, which is overlaps and undergirds the monologic way of thinking, which that reality is ultimately based on individually existing things, uh, and the relate and the relations spring up between them. Um, I think the Neoplatonists argue Filler's book, uh, Neoplatonism, Heidegger, and the History of Being, relation as, as ground, argues that the Neoplatonists argue, no, the relationality is primordial and the, the things related emerge out of it. This is also found in Zen and other traditions. But it's almost going to think, yeah, and I think it's also the case in relativity and it's also the case in quantum mechanics. Um, and, and so even saying it's a probability network ultimately is to say the relationality takes priority over the things related, the events that are related therein. Um, and so this is no longer a really ridiculous or strange thing to say. Um, and so I think that's right. And I think Jung was pushing on something that is properly Neoplatonic and I think can be argued for in a cognitive scientific way. Um, I'll try and do it very sort of gisty. The grammar of cognition, the grammar of how you realize what's relevant has to be deeply conformable, at oneable to the grammar of reality, where you get solipsism, skepticism, you get locked into, you're trapped inside that Lockean, there's a pun there, you're locked inside the Lockean, John Lockean cabinet, getting postcards from the world, and you'll never be able to assemble the postcards to get back to the real world. Um, and so I think Jung is right, and that understanding the deep grammar of cognition is a way of getting an access, not all, but some aspects of the deep grammar of reality. And I think this is what comes out when people are doing these dialogical practices. So I think that's deeply right. I think the idea that there are something analogous to forms in the psyche, there are principles of self-organization, and the, the psyche is much more like a living organism as opposed to Freud's uh, hydraulic steam engine model with all these liquids under pressure. Um, uh, I think that's deeply right. I think those are deep, deeply correct. I think what Jung, what Jung is missing, and it, this is not really a criticism of him because he couldn't help but miss it because it didn't exist. He's missing the cognitive science. He's missing that a lot of the unconscious grammar is not narrative like in nature. It is not like figures telling stories. 
and acting out dramas. Some of it is. Some of it definitely is. So you have the shadow and the wise old man and the king and these personages and and, the, and these are narrative figures and they uh, they are understood narratively. And you, you, I hope you're seeing there's a threat in there uh, about again the narrative bias. Um, and I think there's a part in which the archetypes of our unconscious are like that. But I think there are all kinds of archetypes that are non-narrative in nature. Your cognition is constantly trading between all kinds of things. I won't get into it. There's a whole grammar of relevance realization that's not narrative in nature. It's much more like how life evolves and evolution. Although we tell evolution as if it's a story, it's actually not a story, right? And that's what's really powerful about, about evolution. Um, now, so when we ask where the archetypes are, we have to, I think, first broaden what we are pointing to. I think I say like there's a deep grammar. Some of it is narrative. Some of it's non-narrative. And, we, and then when we put that all together, we now are in this really weird question of where. So where is E equals MC squared? It's not a thing. I can't, like, oh, it's in my backyard. That's where E equals MC squared is. That's ridiculous. When is it? It's not when. Oh, it happens after the Big Bang. We don't even know that. There's so much controversy. So, right? Now, you're tempted to think it must be in another place, a secret place, an other place, an other world than this world, because it's nowhere in this world. But that's wrong, too, because it's not that it's just nowhere. It's also everywhere. Is there anywhere that you can go where equals MC squared doesn't apply? Well, no, there isn't. So thinking about it in another world as being in another world other than this one is also wrong. Saying it's in this world and it's other than this world are both Deeply, deeply wrong. Because what we're trying to do is think of it as a thing that we can, and things are in particular places at particular times. But it is not a thing. It is a relation. It is a relation from which all the relata, all the things related, emerge. It is primordial. Now, it is ultimately bound into the deeper relations of all those relations, right? But we're, we, we, when we ask where, we have to be, the answer is, Everywhere and nowhere. And this is like the medieval definition of God. God is an intelligible sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere. Right? It's that answer. And this is a Neoplatonic argument that I'm making. And, and the temptation is to think it's, it's, it's stored somewhere um, and this must be an other world than our world is wrong. I think it's a mistake. But as we're moving towards a much more information-based uh, yes. understanding of physics, understanding of biology, understanding of, of computation, we can't help but want to know where it, the information is encoded. It, 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 it is difficult to get away from our dependence on space and time as a, a concept. You know, it's what yes, yes, supposed to is. get out of jail free card. Well, it's everywhere and nowhere. But it's not so much the question of where is it. But I do like the idea that it's outside of space and time and that space and time become the sort of theater in which it unfolds and it's it's collapsing into in, into individual happenings. But well, I but guess I, my I wanna, question I wanna, here is, does it, um, it, it is really how does it relate to the collective intelligence question? You know, is it possible that via this thing that is everywhere, we are accessing 
information that isn't just being communicated through the usual linguistic channels. You see, that's the that's the part that I that's the thing I'm I, I'm questioning. Mm. Uh, so saying it's outside of space and time, then it's some something like you you're thinking of space and time as a container, and it's in the space outside of space and time, which of course is a mistake. And I can access that and sort of like warp space and time and uh, get sort of telep- telepathic effects and things like that. And I I'm I'm finding that um, something that uh, I don't. I, it doesn't make sense to me. It just—it just sounds like you—you—you—you uh, uh, you, you, you conclude that it's outside space and outside space and time, and then you—and it's not a thing, and then you make it a—you th- make it a special thing in a as a special space that's outside, and but somehow it still interpenetrates space and time. And I think if we get going down that route, we're getting into a lot of uh, ambiguous and equivocal thought, and of course. You can derive anything from a contradiction. Uh, that's a logical proof. You can derive anything. From, give me one contradictory proposition, and then I can derive anything I want from it. Uh, that's a formal proof. And so you can you can leap to a whole bunch of conclusions about it. Um, so I how, think about, how would such an idea plug into your idea of collective unconscious uh, of collective? Well, so it, it's 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 the idea that the fact that there are shared principles between us mean that we can fundamentally participate in each other's cognition. I don't just represent what you're thinking. You and I both participate in the same principles, and therefore there's an at-one-ment between you and I that is possible, that is not possible if I think I'm just trapped inside my head, extending representations to you and getting representations from you. And it also means that if our grammar, our shared grammar, can affine and attune to the grammar of reality, how reality is being real, the self-realization of reality, our relevance realization and the self-realization of reality can be deeply at one and participate in each other, then that gives a deep ontological ground just like how many different events participate in force equals mass times acceleration or E equals MC squared or, you know, uh, quantum collapse, et cetera, right? They, 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 they have a oneness to them. And, you know, this is probably why we, we're, we're getting, we, we're bumping against oneness, you know, with entanglement and the idea that there was a singularity at some point, an absolute singularity, and somehow everything still has a trace of that in it. Um, physicists are actually now talking this way too. And so that's what it means. For me, it is the deep affordance of collective intelligence um, that um, is being created. Um, much like the rules of English. Where do they exist? Well, in some sense, they exist in each one of our heads. But that's wrong because once I'm dead, the rules don't go away. And the rules are changing, but no one person is changing. And, and, and see what I'm doing? The grammar of English makes all of this distributed cognition possible. Where is the grammar of English? Well, it's kind of in us, but it's not reducible to us. It's beyond us. It's before us. It's beneath us. And, all, and we stretch all of the spatial language because we're dealing with hyper objects that don't fit into our everyday experience. And I must say, it does just give us this wonderful sense of the need to disconnect from our dependence on space and time. You know, we're just so attached to them 
And it was really wonderful speaking with Carlo Ravelli about this because he, you know, he just really helps us through the sort of physics window to just help realize that that is extremely relevant, uh, relative and dependent on, on the interconnections between things as much as any things in and of themselves. Now, John, we have reached the end of our time together. Thank you so much for your patience with my obsessions. It was too valuable an opportunity with such a polymath not to get your view on the many, many things we've been looking into on the show. And I knew that you would have much to offer. So I'm really, really grateful for the perspective that you've given us. I hope the listeners appreciate uh, how wonderful it is to get John's sort of very multidisciplinary approach, which is something we really value on the show. So what's next, John? Just to say goodbye, um, after Socrates is out, your new series on YouTube, is that right? Yeah, this is a series that tries to really build a philosophical framework and an ecology of practices around this collective intelligence and the distributed cognition and the possibility of us educating it and being educated by it so that we tap into collective wisdom and it can help us with the meaning crisis. Yeah, that's out and that's what it's for. So do go and check that. And I think I heard on the Psychology Podcast, there's also talk of one about Zen Buddhism meeting Neoplatonism. Is that right? Yep. Walking the Philosophical Silk Road is the uh, series I'm now at work on. And I'm literally going to go and walk parts of the Philosophical Silk Road. It's going to be something of a pilgrimage, trying to get these two deep synoptic integrations, Zen from um, the East and Neoplatonism from the West to more deeply talk to each other. There's lots of precedent for that. And bring about an opponent processing, not an adversarial relationship, an opponent processing, and get a, perhaps an emergent collective intelligence out of these two deep traditions, deeply dialoguing with each other and emerging something that could perhaps give us a shared courtyard for, in which we could more deeply talk to each other, connect to each other, correct each other, inspire each other, and call each other to authority, responsibility, transcendence, and meaning. Mm. Well, John, it just leaves me on behalf of the listeners to thank you so much for your time, and I look forward very much to speaking again in the future. John Verbeke, thank uh, you. Thank you so much for it. <laughs>